You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer, and I want to thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we'll be discussing the physical long-term and late effects of treatment, strategies to support the survivor for psychosocial effects and physical effects following a cancer survivorship plan, symptom monitoring and management, and barriers to follow-up care. We're delighted to be joined by Dr. Maria Alma Rodriguez, who's a professor in the Department of Lymphoma and Myeloma at the MD Anderson Cancer Center, and also the medical director of MD Anderson Survivorship Program in Houston. Alma, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So I wanted to start by sharing a couple thoughts, and I really want your feedback on this. Fortunately, the number of cancer survivors in the United States continues to grow. I mean, unfortunately, cancer is still a very common disease, but more and more people are becoming long-term survivors. Really focusing in on patients with blood cancers, I want to ask sort of a, maybe a, an odd question, but maybe not. Do we cure cancer? And just in your own practice, how do you use the word cure? Yes, that's a really important question. I think that we do cure several of the hematologic malignancies, primarily those that are uh, on the aggressive end of the spectrum. As you know, mm-hmm. hematologic malignancies are essentially a huge composite of very varied diseases, very significantly different disorders, some of which are very aggressive and are potentially curable, and some that are chronic and manageable, but the patients will live with that disorder for the rest of their lives. And so this brings a really important differentiation in terms of the question of how do we manage the long-term survival of hematologic Mm -hmm. malignancy patients? Because the problems and issues that those patients who received treatments with curative intent are quite different than the patients who are being treated on a more chronic, ongoing, or even on a maintenance long-term basis. There are challenges in terms of managing their health, late effects, and consequences, even at the socioeconomic level, are very different. I'd like to talk first about the patients who are treated with curative intent, and those are primarily patients with aggressive lymphomas, acute leukemias, Hodgkin lymphoma, for example, and the occasional patients with the more indolent hematologic disorders who undergo stem cell transplantation with allogeneic stem cell transplants primarily. Some categories of lymphoid disorders are curable with autologous stem cell transplant, but not many. And so we have, again, a spectrum of uh, complications that these patients are going to face. Most of the patients who receive treatment with curative intent will have received treatments with intensive doses of chemotherapeutic drugs. And many of those drugs do have potential late effects. Among them, of course, we use anthracyclines very, very frequently in the treatment of lymphoid malignancies like diffuse large B-cell lymphomas, Burkitt's lymphomas, Hodgkin's lymphoma. 
And we know that those patients have to be mindful of their cardiovascular health for the rest of their lives. They are more vulnerable, particularly if they received radiation concomitantly with or post chemotherapy, and particularly if that radiation was aimed at the thoracic cavity, because they will have more potential latent damage and injury to their cardiovascular system. So those patients have unique issues, worrying about late second primary cancers that sometimes are related to the treatment itself. We know that some of the very high-dose alkylators that we use to treat aggressive malignancies, as well as alkylators that are used in the stem cell transplant protocols, so patients with the more aggressive hematologic disorders who are treated with curative intent in general receive intensive dose chemotherapeutic regimens, plus or minus now immunotherapies as well. And so while they do recover from those acute toxicity events, on the long term, we are looking at the late effects of those intense treatments. And predominantly, the cardiovascular system is one of those that is very vulnerable to late effects, late onset congestive heart failure, more susceptibility to earlier coronary artery disease. And in addition, they're also vulnerable to the emergence of secondary cancers as a result of the high doses of the chemotherapy itself. So I would like to, in a sense, dissect out the different groups and, again, get your experience with them. So if we think about a patient with a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, let's say a large cell lymphoma, and why don't we make them sort of early middle age, we'll call them 50 years old. If you took a group of 100 of those patients who are long-term survivors, they're 10 years out, they're 20 years out, what is your sense, because I find it's hard to find data, but what is your sense about if we were to give a report card for their overall health as compared to people that were never treated for cancer? Are they doing as well as the other group? Are they doing almost as well? Are they Would they get a, an A for overall health, a B, a C, a D? What's your observation? And, and then I'd like to talk about some of the other groups as well. Well, thank you for asking that question. We have devoted a great deal of focus in the long-term outcomes of younger survivors, adolescents and young adults with non-Hodgkin's and Hodgkin's lymphomas, for example, but we haven't really focused on the older adult populations very much. So you're correct. There is a lack of meaningful data for large cohorts of patients. Nonetheless, we know from some studies with data emerging from European databases where there are national healthcare systems that they do see a higher propensity to significant cardiovascular problems. They do see more emergence of other secondary malignancies that are common in older adults, but to a higher frequency in the survivors of lymphomas, and particularly diffuse large B-cell lymphomas. So if we're going to give a grade to their health, I would say it's probably a C to a D. They really have to focus on maintaining, if they didn't have a healthy lifestyle prior to their diagnosis of the malignancy of the lymphoma, they have to engage and commit to becoming healthier. And to that end, it's really important that the oncologists transmit the urgency of this to the primary care physicians who really are going to be the ones that are more directly influencing 
all of those indicators of health, you know, body mass index, hemoglobin A1C control, blood pressure control, et cetera, cholesterol control, lipid management, all of those will have a tremendous impact on how well these patients will survive. We, the oncology community, render them cancer-free, but that doesn't mean that we have ensured them health for the rest of their lives. That is a work in progress once the treatment is done. There has to be this bilateral agreement between the patients and their providers, the oncologists as well as their primary care providers, that they will focus on a healthier lifestyle. So, I mean, I have to say, it's in a sense humbling, the report card, and I appreciate you're trying to use that rubric. But so let's even take it a little bit further. How about the group of uh, patients who've undergone a transplant? And obviously, there's a difference between auto and, and allo, but the point is, it's very, very high dose therapy. But how about those groups in terms of, again, overall health? Well, it used to be a few years back that transplantation was a treatment modality that was reserved in general for younger adults and young adolescents, of course, and children. But that has shifted over the last two decades where we are providing the option of treatment with stem cell transplantation to older and older adults. And those patients do have significant complications after their treatment. And it's not necessarily an insurmountable problem. But again, it is a problem that has to be considered, particularly for the older adults. Physical activity, maintenance of musculoskeletal health is really important. Some programs now have activated what is called the prehabilitation model, where the patients are, before they undergo the transplant, they are required to have physical therapy and rehabilitation to strengthen them, because that in itself is going to assure that these patients are going to be able to maintain some level of independence, self-management, in addition to addressing all the other health concerns that are more common in older adults, of course. And so I come back to the concept that, and it is by the way true in all malignancies, that the long-term cancer outcomes are only as good as the underlying health of the patient and that the collaboration between the various disciplines caring for the patient is really important. The internal medicine specialists, the cardiologists, the neurologists, the endocrinologists, of course the oncologists, have to be all put on the table and coordinated well if these patients are going to enjoy good health after intensive treatments. And it's not that I'm against the intensive treatments. In fact, I'm one of those that is very proactive in that domain, including CAR T-cell therapies, which by the way, do not have any age cap at this point. But we have to be responsible about what that means for the patients after they're over their treatment and hopefully in remission. So I wanna bring up the topic of uh, survivorship care plans in a sense, to talk about two sides of it. One is I'd like to get your thoughts in terms of the, what are the positives? What are the things that this provides for that may be helpful? But then I also, you know, many have said that that's sort of an unfulfilled promise. They really have not come through as effective as we might wish. So what are your views on that? Unfortunately, your comments are correct. Theoretically and conceptually, if we are, if we prepare for the patients upon their completion of their treatment and upon 
they're reaching a certain time point that we feel they're going to be okay from the cancer perspective. And we really now need to focus on other aspects of their health, their cancer prevention, their management of long-term effects and psychosocial issues. Once we get to that point where we say we've done our job, if we summarized in a coherent fashion what treatment we gave and what are the consequences of that treatment and what needs to be done afterwards, which is what the treatment plan was supposed to do, that would be fantastic. The problem is filling those treatment plans takes an incredible amount of time. I just did that for five of my patients this past week. I spent two hours, and I know the patients well, I spent two hours just doing those five treatment summaries. So it's not a trivial enterprise. It's not a trivial exercise for the oncologist to do this. And yet that's who ultimately is capable of filling those forms out and creating that information because we understand the treatment. We know what we did and we know what are the consequences of that. But that takes time and we are short on time. We only have so many minutes in the day. Correct. Yep. Yep. And as you know, there has been a great deal of debate about whether that is a clinical service that should be reimbursed and it hasn't been, not that I'm aware of. And so that's a challenge on the oncology side, the time and effort that is required to do that. And it's not a trivial requirement. On the other side, I'll tell you about an experience we had where we very consciously did this when we established our survivorship program. We were so excited that we were going to launch this and we were going to be communicating to people. And we started with a pilot in one of our surgical clinics, in the gynecological oncology clinic, because they usually have very good relationship with a community gynecologist who referred the patients. And we thought this will be a seamless transmission of information. It's going to go well. For the first 100 patients, we prepared all these summaries. We gave the patients that information in a flash drive. It was encrypted. Plus, we sent it as well in a letter format to the treating physician. And then we called all those physicians to say, did you receive that information? Was it helpful? And only about a fourth of the physicians had even opened the letters and read the letters. Yeah. So this is the other challenge. The recipients at the other end let's say that we put all that effort forth, is it going to be useful to the recipient at the other end? And I don't think that we're there. We're not in an ideal situation where this process is working well or has worked well up till now. And if someone could come up with a solution to make it work, we would be thrilled. We would be so happy. I'll work on it over the weekend. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, I think this is a chronic problem. And, and the example you gave is a very, very good one because it really I know so much effort is put into the treatment summaries and care plans, and I don't know if people are reading them. You know, in a sense, if it just ends up on a piece of paper, it probably and does not become a living document. It may exactly. not be accomplishing exactly. enough. I want to switch gears to psychosocial issues. And again, I want to ask you the same thing. Now, many times, people come in, I, my patients come, I said, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm mm -hmm. just doing great. And then you see the family member behind them, literally behind them, shaking their head. Yes. <laughs> you know, yes. say, no, he, yes. no, he's not, or no, she's not. So, but from a broader perspective of having done this for many years, again, how were that long-term surviving group, um, 
how are they doing in terms of psychosocial? And then the other group that will say are living with cancer as a uh, in chronic survivorship, how are they doing? Yes. So those are two very different populations, even from the psychosocial perspective. My experience with those treated with curative intent, the intensive treatment populations, is that for a period of time after their treatment, they're very anxious because they understand that there is a potential high risk of relapse, particularly at the very beginning, post-treatment. And there's a great deal of anxiety about that. In the younger adults as well, those who I call the, the working age adults, a very significant problem is their employment, their insurance. Even with the Affordable Care Act, they're vulnerable to not being able to have adequate healthcare coverage. That's another challenge. So some degree of anxiety around that, that eventually over time, as they become more reassured that they are going to be cancer free, they become more relaxed. That's been my observation. The population that you have to pay attention to is those with chronic disorders. I also treat predominantly patients with indolent lymphomas these days. That's my current focus. And I have seen a number of different different patterns of distress. The more distressing to me personally as well, because the distress can go both ways, the patients and the oncologists. Correct, yeah. What distresses me is their economic challenges with the very costly medications. And even those that have Medicare, as you know, they are accountable for a significant portion of the cost of their either prescriptions and or ambulatory care. The ambulatory care in particular can be challenging, the cost of the ambulatory care. And with new innovative oral targeted therapies and immunological agents, which are fabulous, they're wonderful new approaches to the treatment of these disorders, but they are very costly. And patients and their families are struggling and suffer from that. I see that. The other issue is that of anxiety about the illness and the, and the course of the illness. And, and let me explain that, as you know, many of these more, quote, indolent, quote unquote, disorders, we are supposed to, or at least the guidelines say, well, don't treat if they are not manifesting any symptoms. And most of those guidelines focus on the physical symptoms. None of those guidelines take into account what I call psychological distress. Yes. Because many of these patients are fearful. They can see the lymph nodes. They can palpate the lymph nodes. They know they have cancer and they're living with it. And that anxiety of knowing that they have a malignant disorder and nobody's doing anything about it can be very distressing. And so I would very much like our paradigm of the treatment of indolent disorders to take into consideration the patient's point of view. And to that end, I'm also a big fan of patient-reported outcomes that include the psychosocial elements of their health. How are you feeling? Are you anxious? Are you depressed? Is your illness in any way interfering with your activities you know, of, of day to day? That, to me, those are very important questions. And we don't take those into account in clinical trials, as you know. We haven't traditionally. I'm hoping that you know, the newer generation of investigators will take that into account and that we will change the way we perceive of this disorders, that it's not just a physical illness, it's a psychological illness as well, if we take into account 
the effects that knowledge of living with this disorder must have on the patients. I also see the other end of the spectrum, by the way, which is the patients who are completely in denial that this is a serious illness. And I just saw a patient this week who is a classic her lymph nodes are 10 centimeters in the mesentery and she's telling me i have no problems doctor why do i need treatment and so and i have to respect that as well of course but now i'm the one suffering anxiety because i know that this is a problem this she's not well so you have to manage both ends of that spectrum you know the the patients who are extremely anxious and those that are in denial both are problematic so by the way again thank you for sharing because i think these really are dilemmas. It's part of what makes medicine and oncology such a wonderful field at the same time is trying to manage all our patients' worries and anxieties, our own worries and anxieties, and wish to help people. Let me take it a little bit further with psychosocial. So patient-reported outcomes, there was some great data presented at ASCO a few years ago that it prolongs survival. It, I mean, the, the impact not only on quality of life, but on quantity of life. But along those lines, you know, if we ask the questions, are we as oncologists, both in academics and in the community setting, able to uh, provide help for those? You know, again, how are we doing on that? Well, that's an excellent question. So the patient reported outcomes, again, there are two different domains that those tend to address. The domains of the physical symptoms which I think when they talked about the improvement in survival of patients while on chemotherapy, they predominantly were about addressing the acute effects of the treatment and that one would have a very prompt and immediate response and that that obviously helped to get the patients through the treatment with less serious complications and overall better outcomes. The psychosocial elements are a bit different and you're correct that we are not well trained necessarily to address them ourselves and therefore it becomes very important to partner not all institutions organizations practices have the good fortune to be able to have a mental health specialist in their practice but it truly does require persons who are trained either in symptom management It could be physicians, but if they have had some training in palliative medicine or symptom management support, you know, social workers that are trained in counseling, psychologists, of course, it it does require mental health specialists who understand the subtleties of what is acute, what requires immediate attention, what may be a symptom of an underlying personality disorder or some other underlying mental health issue. As you know, also, many people in the population of the United States, if I recall the statistics, approximately 10% of the population has an underlying mental health disorder. Those individuals are going to bring that with them if they develop cancer. And of course, that makes things even more complicated in terms of the management of psychosocial health. And so it does take someone who is trained to recognize the subtleties of what is only an appropriate reaction to an illness, what is called a situational reaction to an illness, versus an underlying health problem, mental health problem that really requires more serious attention. I think that is very important during the acute phase, and it really continues, particularly for people with chronic uh, hematologic disorders. That combination of the anxiety about the illness in the long term 
plus any possible underlying mental health disorder, that's very difficult to manage by oneself. I mean, you need help from a health professional. I want to ask you a little bit about, you know, who should be doing follow-up and, you know, again, over the course of time. So there's a window, again, with patients treated with curative intent. There's a window where there's a significant risk of recurrence. And then at some point, there is a tail on the curve where that group continues to do well. So along those lines, and again, given the challenges of providing care for newly diagnosed patients. And is there a time that we should discharge our patients? And, you know, let me throw in just a little, and not an editorial, but just some other thoughts. Obviously, some of the great research has been done in Canada by Eva Grunfield, looking at, at least in breast cancer, saying patients can be followed by their primary care. They don't need an oncologist. What do you think? Yes. So I think some of that is correct. It depends on uh, the timeline. As you said, there is going to be a window of time in which patients are going to be at risk for recurrence. In the acute hematologic malignancies, for most, that window is between two to three years, where it's the highest proportion of risk. And I'm glad you asked that question. We have tried to address that within the MD Anderson community Early on, when we started to consider the development of the program, we did a big stakeholder sessions, feedback meetings, and so on. And our oncologists felt that we should design a model that was risk-based. And and so I want to emphasize that it should be risk-based, that if, for example, if one has a very limited diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, limited stage, no high-risk factors, prompt complete remission to chemotherapy followed by the consolidated radiation or even no radiation because there's some trials now that suggest that you don't even need radiation if the patients have very good response to the chemotherapy. Those patients probably after two or three years would be very appropriate to transition out of the oncologic setting, out of the acute oncology setting to follow up with In our case, we set up a a clinic that is directed by our medical director of the center, but it's run basically by advanced practice providers who are very familiar with lymphomas and they can monitor the patients. And if the patient chooses to transition to their primary care providers, they can, and we provide information for them to do that. That is not quite the same as, for example, the patients who are now undergoing CAR T-cell therapy at salvage. Those patients, we likely are going to be following at least once a year for God knows how long, 10 years, 15 years. They, of course, will need to have primary care. They have diabetes, they have hypertension, they have other health issues that do require someone else to monitor and take care of. But in the end, we are still accountable for monitoring them for all of these other late effects from the actual treatment itself. And so I want to bring that concept to the fore because everyone quotes the Canadian study and says, oh, you know, we need to transition the survivors out of the oncologic community because primary care has responsibility for monitoring them for life and their health. I don't know that that's correct for all patient populations. And for sure, it's not correct for people who have chronic indolent hematologic malignancies. As you know, they're going to be tied to us, you know, for the rest of their lives. And yet they still need care for their diabetes, their hypertension, and so on. So it should be patient population-based. It should be risk-based decision-making. 
Alma, let me ask you about barriers to care. But again, I want to put a little bit of a twist on this. At least some of the work that I did, it's a while back, I looked at loss to follow-up, which at least in a several community settings and patients who were alive and in remission, in our setting, 50% of the patients were not being seen anymore five years later at the cancer center. And were, in a sense, lost to follow-up. So, What are your observations on that? And then again, more broadly, why are people of that group not coming back? And for the group that wants to come back, what are the barriers that they face? Okay, excellent question. We actually have done a bit of a preliminary look at that question in our own patient group. Since we started the program in 2008, there have been approximately 26,000 patients who have been transitioned who have been considered well enough to be transitioned to what we term survivorship care, which aligns with the Institute of Medicine of the domains of care of you know, prevention, monitoring for late effects, psychosocial support, et cetera. Of those patients, this past year, we saw 12,000 of those patients. So we have, in essence, lost slightly more than half of those patients who no longer uh, have been seen in follow-up. And we don't know why that occurred. We looked at the obvious, the most obvious cause or the, the sad and most obvious cause, which would be that they maybe have died. And that is the case. Approximately 10% of that group that no longer is coming to see us uh, is because they have died. We don't know the causes of death, however, and we would need to do further investigation into the National Death Registry to find out what has occurred to them. We do know a proportion will be because they have died, possibly of their primary malignancy, but they would have. we think they would have come back to MD Anderson if that had been the case. They likely have died of other causes, of other illnesses. There's another proportion, approximately a third, that we know lost insurance that allowed them to return to us. As you know, insurance plans select which institutions or which providers are covered by their plans. And as happens to many institutions and clinics and providers, sometimes you're left out of the plan and the patient cannot afford to pay out of pocket to come. That's another significant proportion we have found out. And the rest simply are not known. We think some of it is because of distance of travel. You know, Texas Mm -hmm. is actually a rural state. When you think about it, there are maybe four or five major metropolitan areas, but it's predominantly mid-sized towns and cities and and small, very small cities. Mm -hmm. And so perhaps for some patients, there are socioeconomic factors besides insurance, because there are many other out-of-pocket costs that are involved in traveling, you know, long distances for healthcare. And so all of those, I think, compounded make it difficult for some patient populations to return for long-term wellness follow-up. Yeah, and thank you, because I think it's a wonderful summary of the practical problems that people face, and just those that come with aging as well, when you've been following people for many years. So let me ask you, perhaps as a last question, but certainly a timely one having to do with COVID, but it you know, it raises that whole issue of immunodeficiency. So what has been your experience in in that at MD Anderson in terms of how much is immunodeficiency and immune suppression impacting our patients' lives? Any thought in terms of will it change your therapies at all, your approach? 
excellent question. I think the pandemic has brought to the fore a very important issue in terms of the modern therapeutic approaches, particularly for the B-cell disorders, which, as you know, from the acute B-cell leukemias to multiple myeloma, we are using immunological approaches that destroy the unhealthy B-cell malignant components, but they also destroy and can harm the healthy B-cell immunity. And in that sense, these patients are not able to mount immunity well, not just to COVID, but to a number of other infectious illnesses. I think that we have not consciously considered that in that, as I have been thinking about this problem, and I have given it a significant amount of thought, I think that we have to consider these patients before they even start any treatment that is going to be immune suppressive, we probably should treat them as we would a patient who's going to undergo a splenectomy, right? We have all of these guidelines for immunizing patients before their splenectomies are done. And yet we don't consciously or conscientiously do this for patients who are about to undergo significant immune suppressive therapies. And right. perhaps that is a practice change that should be considered. We saw early on in the onset of the pandemic that of the hematologic malignancy populations that in our hospital, the acute leukemias and the multiple myeloma patients were the ones predominantly coming in. We were surprised by the multiple myeloma group but now retrospectively, does it make sense? You know, their plasma cells, their mature B cell populations are not healthy. And so we saw more of them get very severe illness than we did the other. The lymphoma populations, we had a very low mortality. They, we did have people come in to the hospital, but relatively low mortality compared to the leukemia and myeloma patients. Yeah. So that's what we're seeing. And if, and COVID is only one of potentially many other pandemics that we might face. The H1N1 pandemic, for example, could have served as a model. I mean, we learned from that pandemic that the immune response to the vaccine in the hematologic malignancy populations was significantly deficient compared to the healthy controls. And the, there were several publications to that effect. And so we sort of anticipated the same would happen this time. What has been very challenging, honestly, with this pandemic is that we have been at a loss since the recommendations literally were changing week to week. It was so difficult to counsel patients. Do we pause the chemotherapy and allow two or three weeks so that they can get their vaccine? And then we allow another two or three weeks rest so they mount some level of immunity. It has been very challenging in that regard. And it hasn't ended. You know, it's still ongoing. So lessons learned for me is that I now very consistently am asking all my patients about all recommended vaccinations, whether they're in the middle of treatment or post-treatment or my long-term survivors, I'm checking with all of them. And guess what I'm finding? The majority are not up to date on their vaccinations for adults. Yes. And so I'm now on a new mission, and that's to get everyone all of their <laughs> okay. vaccinations. Actually, I have to say, and you've motivated me as well, So I, and hopefully some of our listeners, these are not difficult questions to ask people. 
Let's talk about your vaccination record. And it makes me think a little bit of uh, oncofertility. I mean, we do take a pause and look at fertility issues and address them before we start treatment. And, you know, unless treatment must start immediately. So the idea of actually addressing these issues and taking care of it is a terrific one that I'm going to remember also going forward. So I want to take the opportunity. I say this has been a wonderful discussion, and I've really enjoyed it and learned a lot. And I'd like to take a minute to thank Dr. Maria Alma Rodriguez, who is, again, a professor in the Department of Lymphoma Myeloma at the MD Anderson Cancer Center. Thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. This is Dr. Ken Miller. I'd like to thank all of you for listening to this informative episode. For a listing of all of our healthcare professional continuing education activities, podcasts, and healthcare professional resources, please visit lls.org CE. And for questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatments, financial, and other support resources. The LLS Copay Assistance Program is also an important resource. It provides assistance toward the cost of private Medicare, Medicaid, and TRICARE insurance premiums and treatment-related copays and coinsurance for prescription drugs, labs, scans, tests, etc. New program enhancements include LLS Copay now offers instant decision, no more waiting and get a decision in real time and access funds immediately. We've raised our award caps as well and award levels vary by the disease fund. Visit the website for a full list of covered expenses, eligibility, and how to apply at lls.org copay. I encourage you to sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. LLS also offers a series of podcasts for patients and families at lls.org podcast. And we look forward to you joining us on future episodes. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.